This is Trevor, and for myself, Lauren, and Leah, welcome to episode 212. This time around, you are joined by award-winning actor Stephen Lang. At time of release, his new film, The Seventh Day, is in theaters and on demand this weekend. Also starring Guy Pearce and Vadir Derbez. It's a fun horror flick about a renowned exorcist teaming up with a rookie apprentice. Hear how Stephen got involved in the project and how he brought his character of the Archbishop to life. He also talks about the Marcus Nispel film he did called Exeter, some of his fave horror movies, the latest on Don't Breathe 2, and lots more. Episode 212 starts now. This is Stephen Lang, and you're listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. Father Daniel, I would like you to meet Father Peter Costello. Father Daniel comes highly recommended as our newest and finest recruit. What did the Archbishop tell you about me? You're the best exorcist there is. What he didn't tell you was that they can teach you the prayers, but that's not what separates us from your average priests. You need to be willing to put yourself at risk. Change those clothes. You look like a priest. An exorcist doesn't hide from evil. He runs toward it. You know what I witnessed? It's the epitome of darkness. This young boy needs help. I saw this on the news this morning. He murdered his family. So what are you waiting for? Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a fascinating and evocative storyteller. His career began on the stages of the most renowned theaters in America, where he earned multiple awards and a Tony nomination for his work in The Speed of Darkness on Broadway. He has brought to life the tales of Moliere to Shakespeare, Aaron Sorkin to Arthur Miller. His debut as a playwright and director was with Beyond Glory getting a Helen Hayes nomination and eventually in 2010 the Patriot Award in honor of this and other theater and charity work for the military as he toured around the world performing for thousands of our troops, all the while serving as an artistic director of the prestigious Actors Studio. He has amassed over a hundred film and TV credits, including the Emmy-winning Babe Ruth story, shows like Crime Story and The Fugitive, the Critics' Choice Award-winning Terra Nova, Into the Badlands, Law and & Order, and more. On the big screen, he has brought us into the world of Manhunter, Tombstone, Public Enemies with Christian Bale and Johnny Depp, James Cameron's three-time Oscar-winning Avatar, Fetty Alvarez's immaculate exercise intention, Don't Breathe, VFW, and the list keeps growing and growing. This past year, he even released an illustrated children's book inspired by Gettysburg, entitled The Wheatfield. His remarkable caring nature and attention to detail and respect of not only the art, but the power of storytelling makes all of his work immersive and compelling and his performances unforgettable. His latest film is a new horror adventure called The Seventh Day. It's available in select theaters and on demand March 26th. We are honored to welcome the great Stephen Lang. Yeah! Yeah! Whoa, wow. Listen, 
I think maybe we should just skip the interview and you just maybe just do that intro one more time. <laughs> Steven, thank you so much. It's such an yes. honor to uh, to meet you yeah. in this way. Yeah. And congrats on this terrific film. And again, man, thanks for being amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for appreciating and for really very kind words, but it's great to be here, you know? Let's talk a bit about the horror genre and what your relationship has been to the genre as a viewer. What do you remember about the very first time you saw a horror film and how that made you feel? The first horror film that I recall seeing was when I was a boy, I saw The Bride of Frankenstein, which was so amazing to me. And I remember the, you know, Professor, uh, I can't remember, his, uh, it's out of my mind right now, but it was as amusing as it was horrifying. And I loved that film. Then I recall uh, seeing when I was about nine, a film called, it was either called Two on a Guillotine or Three on a Guillotine with, I think, Dean Jones of all people. And it scared the pants off me, this thing. And at that point, I swear, I swore off horror films. And then the next one, <laughs> I really did, you know, I might say the next one uh, I saw was The Exorcist, which I'm still recovering from. And uh, and I've seen that many, many times. And I've come to consider that to be one of the finest American films ever made. It's just extraordinary movie. And so that those are the I guess the kind of the buoys in the harbor of my relationship with harbor with, with horror rather is, are, are those films. Uh, I never thought I was going to be involved in the genre particularly. And then over the last years, I guess I have become somewhat immersed in it. When horror is injected into a story, it has a very tangible effect on an audience. And when told from the stage or screen on the performer as well, what do you enjoy about bringing us into those kinds of stories as an actor and some of the qualities that make it a little different than other genres? <sighs> Gee, that's a it's a it's a tough question. I think so much of the what you're talking about is directorial or, you, you know, it's part of the, the, the technology of 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 horror or of, of, of frightening or shocking or scaring people as an actor. I think all you, you want to be is in the moment and just play the authenticity of it. Whether if your job is to overwhelm and intimidate, that's what you, you, I want to do as, as, as effectively as I possibly can. Uh, on the other hand, if, if, if my job is to be intimidated or to be, to be cowed or, or terrified, you know, that's, that's, that's my gig there. It, it seems to me, I'm not sure that that's really answering the question, but it's like, I think the answer is that basically you approach this genre as, as the same way you would approach any acting kind of problem, just by being authentic and truthful and, and simple and in the moment, if you can. Yeah. So this isn't the first time you've portrayed a man of the cloth. You were in a really fun supernatural film by Marcus Nispel in 2015 for Blumhouse called Exeter and Father Conway. And that movie is a blast. I'm yeah. just wondering, what was the experience like of dipping your toes into the teen slasher genre with that one? Marcus called me and said, you got to come and do this movie with this thing. And I said, ah, no, I don't. I don't ah, you've got to come. Just get on. Get on your motorcycle and come. <laughs> and, and, then, 
And then he sent me a photograph of himself in front of a, on a street with a signpost that said Lang, Dr- Lang Drive. He says, you've got to come. So I said, OK. Now, I didn't understand the script for a moment. I never knew what the hell was going on in this script. But I think that that, that kind of played for the character, you know. And, that, <laughs> and so that's the, that's the first time I ever put on the, on the collar. I guess. And so uh, I guess I was successful enough so that I get, um, you know, I become an archbishop <laughs> in this one. <laughs> That's right. I, I got <laughs> Where was that one filmed? Exeter? Yeah. That was filmed in Rhode Island. And yeah, and that's one of the reasons I did it too, is because I I could I kind of rode out, took a nice motorcycle ride from my home across the Berkshires to Rhode Island. And it was really, really pleasant, you know. Um, and uh, it was filmed at this school, this abandoned school that had been a state-run place, and I believe that this place was a real, real horror show. A real, I think there are scandals with it. I can't remember the name of it, but it's something innocuous like, you know, the Willow School sure. or something. <laughs> or Wayward Boys. It, it had its... <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it has its own graveyard and it's not every kind of Whoa. It's not a prep, most prep schools don't, I believe, have their own. Yeah, graveyard. exactly. Wow. And, <laughs> and, and, and the feeling and it was a big place because it wasn't one building. There were numbers of buildings and some of them had been closed for years and we were in several of them and they felt absolutely creepified, just awful. These places. And so that's that's where that was. That was in terms of the, you know, a lot of times you'll get asked, was it spooky making a movie or something? Uh, if it's a spooky movie. And usually it's like, well, no, not really. You know, <laughs> you know, we, we just do the job. But but on Exeter, on Marcus's movie, that place was genuinely a very, very uh, sad, uh, uh, full of pain. Uh, place it was palpable in there oh my gosh well listen one of the great things about you Stephen, is that you literally vanish into your roles and we obviously knew you were in the seventh day and didn't even recognize you when you appeared on screen it wasn't not only the way you look but how you carry yourself the mannerisms change the cadence of your speech changes so we're introduced to the archbishop in this film so tell us a bit about him how you developed the character it's interesting sometimes to to uh, to do a part where just because of the the his function in the script or the and the amount of screen time that he has, you really need to work in a very, very efficient and kind of a swift way, which is not to say in broad strokes, but I think it is to say in kind of bold strokes in a way. And uh, I think the the archbishop to me, when I read it, he struck me as um, kind of patrician. I mean, there's an archbishop. So there's something sort of classically patrician about them in the first place, it seems to me. Although you can go in all kinds of directions with an archbishop, no doubt about it, you know. But 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 this one, I just kind of could see him as a bit of a silver fox, as it were. That was informed, I think, by the cut of his cloth, uh, as well as by the combing, by the way the hair is groomed. And uh, and certainly by the as you said, the speech, the cadences of the speech, the kind of the velvet of the speech, you know, the you know what I mean? The, yeah, uh, the texture, the yeah, 
gesture and the tone, which, which in this case, I wanted to be sort of, you know, I would say worn velvet a bit, bit, you know, uh, little did I know that Keith David would be in this. So when it comes to, when it comes to velvet, what the hell am I? Doing? <laughs> Tremendous uh, voices in this film. <laughs> right. I can't, I can't compete with Keith's voice, my God. But so, so that was kind of it. The, and the idea of just sort of shaping it, you know, kind of, kind of quickly. I remember I've seen wonderful films of Picasso in his studio, particularly later in life, when he would just take a piece of clay and in, you know, about 60 seconds, shape it into a bull, you know, a complete piece of art. It was just so sort of intrinsic to him. So in his bones at at that point, and he wasn't trying to prove anything, wasn't even trying to make art. He was just making a bull, something like that. So I think, you know, in creating the archbishop, that kind of came into play a little bit of that idea of just working quickly, working efficiently, making your impression because you're not going to be around that often. The Boo Crew will be right back. What in hell has taken over this holy place? And who on earth can stop it? Somebody around here just hates priests. You could be number three. Vestron Pictures presents The Unholy. But I swear something is happening. It's real and I need your help. Now... It is unleashed. Have you ever considered the possibility that that maybe there is a demon? Unrelenting. You are the chosen one. Chosen for one. You must fight the devil. Unholy. Dear God, what is this you will have me do? More controversial than the exorcist. More terrifying than the omen. The unholy. You haven't got a prayer. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parents. In researching for your role as an archbishop, what surprised you the most about playing that character or the rite of exorcism? Well, what surprised me about playing? I don't know. I, I can't recall being particularly surprised by anything, although I, I think that's a sad answer to a good question, because one should always be surprised by things. And maybe I was on the day, but I can't, I can't quite, quite recall it. The, the whole question of exorcism is that that's all... I don't think even surprising is the right word there, but it's such a, it's a very fertile and a very dark and very, it's a cool subject. You know, it's a subject, one of those subjects that you want to know about and you also don't want to know at the same time. And I think, and you know, that's the way I feel about it. It's not something I'm, you know, so deeply interested in penetrating and, and understanding because it's a rabbit hole. I just would as soon not go down. It seems to me at the same time, it's so intriguing. It's, you know, it's, it is intriguing stuff, but I don't think that that's an inappropriate kind of response for an archbishop either. I mean, you know, a life in the church uh, is, is a life is a very wide life. It seems to me. And, and you kind of pick and choose the experiences that you, 
you uh, you want to have. I think that the archbishop has kind of armed himself against the darkness, has insulated himself against the darkness to to an extent. You know, deals with the finer things. In another iteration of this story, one might find that the darkness really lies within, you know, the archbishop. You know, who's to say? But what was useful for this story, we got enough of him. I think I've gone off topic. No, no, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. You know what's right. what's really also notable is that a lot of what you talk about in the film as the archbishop is actually mirroring the headlines and the very real goal of the Vatican right now to recruit more exorcists. That's actually something that is happening. So there is a seed of truth to the real world as to what's going on in this film, which I thought particularly frightening. Well, it's also a chicken and egg thing. I mean, because I, I do think that the script comes out of that phenomenon, you know. Well, listen, we're living in very uh, anxiety ridden times. And uh, times like this, I think, really do give rise to all kinds of behavior, all kinds of need to believe in certain things, all kinds of manifestations. I think it's it's a it's both what the Vatican is doing in terms of recruiting people and what and, and the reason that it's doing it is real are just it seems to me to be a real manifestation of the times we live in, which are just fraught, fraught with not only anxiety, but with despair for many people. And see, that's the key. That's the key thing is is because if you despair, because, you know, I think and I'm I'm uh, I'm not a I'm not a Catholic, but my understanding is that the only unforgivable, unforgivable sin, irredeemable thing is suicide. Because you don't you haven't up to that last minute, you can seek. Redemption, you can you can always come back, but with suicide, you can't. And it is therefore un, unredeemable. And suicide happens, you know, in all its permutations at bottom. It happens because of an absolute absence of hope. Hope is gone. And that to me is the definition of despair. You know, that would be the definition of a demon, of a state of, of Satan, you know, someone who has completely lost the ability to hope for anything. So since this film has to do with exorcisms, did someone come in and bless the set prior to you guys filming? It might have been blessed. I think it was blessed. It was blessed. I'm sure it was. I've been on it. You know, that's become much more. A lot more sets are being blessed these days than than used to be. And not only by priests, you know, Avatar has been blessed a number of times by by different indigenous kind of leaders, which has been one. Hey, listen, there's nothing wrong with a blessing. If you can get a blessing, get the blessing. Take it, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> right. right. Justin P. Lang, who wrote and directed the film, what did you find the benchmarks of his style and the energy he brought to his, his sophomore feature? And what about him made you trust him? Oh, I didn't trust him. Not for one minute. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't do anything to make me not trust him. Look, part of the gig, part of the job, part of the, the contract, the unwritten contract with an actor and a director is you make a bargain to trust. Now, that bargain can be stomped upon and is stomped upon a number of times. And therefore, you never trust that particular person again. But when you go into every kind of a deal, you got to lay it out there. You know, you got to put it on the table and trust. And Justin did nothing 
to do, but, but benefit that, but, you know, honor that, that trust. So that was, that was cool. He wrote it and he directed it. You got to, I give anybody props just for doing that in the first place. I mean, it takes so much energy and also this particular subject matter, you know, it's weird stuff. You know, it's a, it's an odd place to go and to think about. It takes a certain type of mind to do that. So I give him, we did a great job. We did. I, I enjoyed working with him a lot. He knew what he wanted and he was happy with, with, with what I was bringing to it. You got some powerful scenes with Guy and, and Vadir who play this pair of exorcists, one well-known and one experienced and one who's just kind of getting a taste of all that, that is to come as a rookie. What did you enjoy about those scenes with them and their performances? Well, one of the reasons I wanted to be on the picture was because I, I was res- have great respect for Guy Pierce. And, uh, and Vladdy did a wonderful job. As well, but it was guy. You know, I thought, wow, I've I've never worked with him, and I and uh, and I'd like to. I think he's really good, and he was. He was terrific, and he was a good guy to be around. And you know, the, uh, the you kind of fall into a shorthand, just sort of an actor shorthand that he's that we both got, and uh, uh, and he was good, and he brought a nice. Uh, he took the work very very seriously, but is also, you know, is a joy to be with. He wasn't just wallowing in the evil of the entire thing. It didn't go completely method on me. You know, nor I on him. And we're both capable of doing that. So, uh, yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I enjoyed working with, enjoyed the scenes. They were very comfortable because they were in my study. And, you know, which was exactly what I would demand were an archbishop. It was all that rich leather and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was actually very pleasant. I was sorry when they said rap. Well, that's a good sign. So as well as the seventh day, you appear in a phenomenal new show by Fetty Alvarez called Calls for Apple TV Plus. And it's very unique in the sense that it leaves so much to our imagination as it's told through phone calls. What was your particular experience like doing that? And we had talked to Fetty a little bit about just the, the general construct of the show. And he said it was very interesting as to sending this box to the various actors. What was your experience? He calls me saying, look, I'm doing this crazy show, man, for uh, like, uh, you know, you've got to come do this part. You know, this part is like, you You better do this part. And so I just said, OK. He said, good. And he started kind of explaining it to me. And, and it was like, uh, OK, it's all okay, I get it. It's like, isn't it? Aren't you, so it's like radio drama, right? Well, yeah, no, not really. No, it kind of. No, I don't think so. You know, I said, well, whatever. So anyway, he sent me uh, the script and then we did the record. Uh, it was myself uh, and Fede and uh, Aubrey Plaza, who plays my daughter, I guess, on the thing. And uh, I enjoyed it. It was good. And then I completely forgot about it until you <laughs> brought it up. <laughs> but I hope it's a massive, massive success it just debuted and i mean everybody's loving it man they haven't heard they haven't seen or heard anything like this in our time anyway you know and i man with the the rise in audio entertainment as a radio guy myself i love that that theater of the mind is back in so many different ways and and calls really kind of brings it to the tv which is insane well i love i mean look i grew up with either listening to drama on discs, you know, just on, on uh, vinyl and on the radio and listen to radio. And I actually did some radio drama back in the seventies, even though it was retro radio drama, 
you know, it was done by an NPR and everything. And I always enjoyed it and everything. And then, uh, yeah, the audio stuff is just amazing. And as you say, the position we've all been in for the past year has has made it even that much more profound because the quality of and one a buddy of mine said to me about calls, they say, watch and listen to calls, but do it. Make sure you got your, your buds in. It's better that way. You, said, you want that sound right in your head. Definitely. And, and speaking of sound, the voice that you crafted for the blind man in Fetty's Don't Breathe is yeah. unforgettable. Lauren and I, I know went to the theater at least three times yeah. to see Don't Breathe in the theater. Leo a number of times as well. We actually even tracked yeah, down yeah. some props from the movie. We have the blind man set of keys that the kids try to find. We have uh, <laughs> one of your outfits splattered in blood and ever. We are obsessed with that film. Can you tell us a little bit about how fun and challenging it is to play the blind man? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, the first time out. I was, you know, you just plunge in because what do I know? You know, and I did the I did. The, I went at it the best way I could. I figured out a way to go at it. And uh, and that was that was it worked out good. And and I've been able to expand on that in the second one. This time, I really felt I had the proper time to 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 really to really prepare. I'm not saying I was not prepared for the first one. I was. But I really only had. I had a month or maybe five weeks, just a little over a month from the time I said to do it to the time we started shooting. And, you know, a role like that, it can take you two weeks just to accept the fact that you're at, you're doing to actually, you know what I mean? To, you can have accepted the role, but it's another thing accepting the role, you know, you, you know, you kind of, some roles that water is very cold to go in. So you're very timid about doing it. But but I didn't have the time to screw around or be timid. And I just did it. And it worked. Worked out good. But this, when I was doing the sequel, I felt a real obligation to really, really work more specifically on the blindness because I had the time to do it on this. And, that, and so I hooked up with this amazing organization, uh, the Northeastern Association for the Blind, which is located in Albany. And I began working with uh, their director of um, orientation and movement, and which is what it's, where it's all about. Because the second script was, you know, it's a different deal. Don't Breathe 2 is different than Don't Breathe 1 was. And so I, I just needed to do that preparation there. When you're working on the mechanics of a role, it, it's tangible. You know, you can do it. It's uh, you can have success or not success, or you can uh, you can kind of grade your success as opposed to kind of internalizing the role and everything like that. Don't worry about that so much. In any case, I really, really enjoyed. It's a perverse way to perverse sort of enjoyment preparing for this role and then uh, going off uh, to shoot it and sort of then internalizing all the stuff that I've been working on and. And and becoming the blind man again with confidence, with full confidence, you know, this time. And yeah, finding it again. It was cool. <laughs> yeah, working with Betty on crafting this iconic blind man character, how was the character brought to life? Was it mostly in a script or directing, or how much of it was you improvising throughout the film? Well, there's I think the script was quite specific, but or and, and very descriptive. 
but the bringing it to life is is all kind of improvisational, you know, you know, and Fede, we really were working very, very closely together uh, on that uh, in terms of in, in every respect, in terms of the physicalization of the, 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 the speed with which he walked away, everything, every every physical aspect of it, Fede was watching and weighing in on. And then also addressing it in technical terms uh, sometimes as well, how to best capture what it was I was doing in which we were, we were kind of in a partnership in terms of the relationship to the camera. You know, the eyes, it's all about the eyes. The eyes are the window of the soul and they tell so much. And so the way they're covered was, was crucial. So my relationship to the lens, the, my eyes relationship to the lens was, was very, very uh, important. And that that's so totally in Fede's kind of wheelhouse. You know, he was sort of engineering that the whole way. So that in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, it was you're, when you're working on a part, you're doing all kinds of stuff. You're throwing the kitchen sink at it. And in the end, it's a friggin' mystery. Awesome, awesome. Stephen. That was killer. So much. Thank you so much for your time today, man. Yes. Really appreciate it. And congrats yes. on the film. Yeah. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Nice talking with you all. Be very well. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 212. Special thanks to our guest, Stephen Lang. Follow at slang underscore 7-Eleven on Instagram and at I am Stephen Lang on Twitter. At time of release, see the seventh day in theaters and on demand now. Production tracks for this one provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boot Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting. Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.